Hello, Sean here. Welcome back to another episode in this series about prehistoric art and caves. Last episode we talked about Homo aestheticus as a different idea to some other ways of talking about the origin of art that might make some errors. We began that discussion with the idea that for art to be invented, people would need to have the idea that representation is possible, and then looked at all the problems with this idea. One of the biggest, most obvious ones is that representational art is not the only kind of art. Even if you stay within the boundary of visual art, of painting and engraving, there's abstract art, whether geometric and patterned or something more chaotic. But this episode we're going to look at prehistoric cave art with another lens, one that wonders if that dichotomy that so much of cave art studies relies upon abstract versus representational art, if that dichotomy blinds us to certain things, does it make us see prehistoric art in a particular way, with this boundary already in place, this dichotomy, but maybe that's only one way to understand it? This is another theory, kind of about the origin of art, that brings us back into the caves. In fact, it brings us back to spaghetti lines. Remember those lines that Edward Watchtell was confused by? In the first episode, drawn over a lot of the cave art images, like they wanted to obscure the image, but drawn carefully enough to be sure not to completely eradicate it. A scholar named Darren Ambrose wrote a paper in 2006 called 30,000 BCE Painting Animality that can deepen our understanding of these lines and some other similarly confusing aspects typical of cave art. However, before we continue, I should warn you, this episode will pretty soon be getting into some pretty confusing philosophy, um, philosophy that I have not read thoroughly. So this episode is going to be one where I'm still trying to figure stuff out, where I don't have a thorough knowledge of the foundation of this stuff, so it's less like I'm building a house of knowledge with a sturdy foundation and more like I'm throwing myself into the middle of a foreign city and seeing what sense I can make out of it, which is still a cool way to approach things sometimes, especially philosophy that's fun to read but requires a lot of work and contextualization to understand, which is exactly what we encountered this episode. So if you're not into that, you can always skip to the next episode in this series when I'll be talking about stuff that I know more thoroughly and is less confusing. You don't need to listen to this one in order to listen to the next one, in other words. However, you know, we'll still be going over lots of cool things that aren't confusing, <laughs> um, especially in the first little bit, so, you know, don't abandon me quite yet. The point is that many, many of these sentences in this episode will will be without the caveats that they should have. Caveats like, I'm not really sure, or I think this is what it means, like that sort of stuff. Like, I'm only going to sound confident because it's much better to listen to. So if you're an expert in anything I discuss, and I say something you think is wrong, don't come at me like I'm pretending to be an expert. Um, you know, as more people start listening, I really want to emphasize that this is not me teaching or educating. That's not the relationship I want to build. Like, I want to learn as well alongside you. Like, I want this to be me learning about cool stuff and then talking about it. And by making my talking public, anyone who listens can add things from what they know. And then I can learn more, we can learn more, you know, and talk about it, that sort of thing. 
So, you know, rather than trying to whittle everything we talk about down to one thing, one truth, reality, I want to try to inculcate more of a sense of exploration and proliferation, if you get my meaning. Like, if I say something and you've read a book about why that something is not correct, I think it's a lot better to have the attitude of like, hmm, that's interesting, but what about this? Rather than the attitude that's much more common online, where people go, no, no, not that, this! And then people start arguing over what the singular truth is in ways that are quite often unpleasant. Like, I think arguing like that about subjects like this should be for experts in the given field. People who know, or, you know, at least are supposed to know, like the field's entire history and intricacies. If you're a dilettante, if you just read the f a few books in the field, it usually doesn't make sense to passionately argue to try to get to one single truth, right? Because, you know, it's, it's like a person who's read two books arguing with a person who's read a different two books, right? Like, like you're just arguing for the truth that makes sense with your personality and politics and cosmology and because of, you know, the subset of the field that you've read arguing with somebody else in a similar position but with different variables. So you never really get anywhere with those kind of discussions, except being angry or being fulfilled, I guess, because you successfully pretended to know things. <laughs> like, I, I don't know why, but people get, like, borderline horny over pretending they know things online. <laughs> it's a very weird hobby, I've noticed. A lot of people have. I think it's, you know, a, a better way to be a dilettante is to be an explorer in a field and, like, try to learn different narratives and explanations and facts and try to, like, get a rough mapping of all the different sides of the argument, you know, the, the field as, like, a, a polyhedron. <laughs> um, you know, trying to obtain many different lenses for looking at the object of the field in question as you can, the thing that that field studies. You know, in other words, I really want you to bring your knowledge to the table or to the podcast, but please try to do so in the spirit of addition, not negation. Like, hmm, that's cool. What about this way of looking at it? Check out this text. Rather than like, nuh-uh, not that, this. Um, for one, it just makes things more pleasant. But also, it's a great tool of the internet. Like using instantaneous communication combined with the knowledge of a crowd or audience, like an aggregate knowledge, um, and focused on something specific. Unfortunately, it seems to primarily be used to accumulate TikToks from transgender teenagers and stuff like that, so hopefully we can use that tool in a better way. So, with all that in mind, let's descend again into the caves. Let's get back to that guy I mentioned at the beginning, Darren Ambrose, and his paper from 2006 called 30,000 BCE painting animality. As I said, it brings us not only back into the caves, but back to what Edward Watchtell in episode 1 
called Spaghetti Lines. Because it's funny, when I was reading about those spaghetti lines in Watch Tell, I was kind of confused because I'd never seen anybody else mention them, even though they appear in some of the most famous cave art sites in the world. And it seems like they're involved in many of the individual artworks, too. It's not like they're just involved on the odd one on the side or anything. Well, it turns out that prehistorians did mention these lines, but for the beginning, they were kind of pissed off at them, mostly, it seems. Like like the famous cave art researcher Abbe Bruel, in this early prehistorian working around the turn of the century, around 1900, he fucking hated these lines. He called them lines of interference, because that's what he primarily saw them as, right? Like lines that some annoying, bullshit, stupid caveman with no artistic talent annoyingly drew over all the beautiful art that this caveman's more respectable friends were creating. Obviously, if you have that kind of view, you won't spend too much time writing about these lines or analyzing them. As the 20th century and cave art studies progressed together, other experts noted these lines in less and less exasperated ways, even sometimes in somewhat odd tones like N.K. Sandars, who said that these lines were the splendor of forms yet to come. Rather than being pissed off at these lines and other geometric figures that were obscuring the true art, the representational art, Sanders frames it as a precursor to representational art. And other mid-century scholars like, like the influential structuralist André Leroy Garand also treated the abstract art with more respect than Bruel and the other, you know, early 20th century cave art researchers. They focused on it more, they theorized about these lines. A lot of them were thinking that they were kind of unfinished outlines of what was to be representational figures, or maybe practice, like maybe that's how artists would learn with these wild lines, um, or maybe they were just abandoned at some point. But what Darren Ambrose notes in this 2006 paper is that all these scholars maintain this dichotomy between the abstract art and the representational art. Ambrose wants to collapse this dichotomy and see what happens. See if we can uncover some new ways of understanding cave art by doing so. He says, quote, Since the great majority of Paleolithic wall art precisely consists of such graphic units, i.e., abstract and complex interweaving lines and marks, abstracted and isolated parts of animals, and unrecognizable biomorphic forms. I wish to argue in this paper that it seems unjustifiable to continue with this form of graphic dualism that insists upon separating the integral animal forms from the seemingly disorganized, chaotic, and non-figurative elements. It seems illegitimate to separate and privilege one type of visual space, apparently organized around quote-unquote good naturalistic representational form, from another type of graphic space, considered to be incohesive and disorganized, and which is taken merely to function as a subsidiary and subordinate zone to the first. The possibility that a radical graphic fluidity might exist within prehistoric painting and engraving has often been overlooked, sidelined, or diminished by prehistoric art specialists." Unquote. And Ambrose is not alone. He builds upon a handful of other researchers who also don't overlook these lines, 
especially the aforementioned in last episode, Michel Lorblanchet, and another researcher named Emmanuel Anati. Anati's work focuses on similarities between, according to him at least, all prehistoric cave art. You know, since prehistoric cave art exists worldwide, and in many, many different cultures, obviously the similarities are going to be pretty abstract. Anati's analysis found that there are three types of sign in all prehistoric art. Pictograms, ideograms, and psychograms. So, pretty abstract, as I said. Um, and a few of them are easy to understand, like pictograms are representational images, like most of the cave art you see when you Google cave art, like the image of a bison. Um, ideograms are repeated symbols, and psychograms are, quote, exclamations created under the influence of intense impulses and violent discharges of energy, and as such were capable of expressing sensation, unquote. Psychograms are unique. Just the effect of whatever the impulse of the particular prehistoric artist was at that particular time. Anadi argues that this threefold structure is common to all prehistoric art throughout the entire world, which, you know, is interesting, but to me, when things get to this level of abstraction, I'm like, okay, what's, what's interesting about this? Or, you know, how can you even disprove this? Like, like couldn't anything that doesn't fit into the schema just be called a psychogram? Anyways, I, ha I haven't read Anatty besides Ambrose's summary of him, so perhaps he answers all these questions or his theory uh, preemptively does or something. But the interesting thing about it for Ambrose's purpose is that this analysis doesn't rely on this graphic dualism, instead seeing it as a more coherent whole. The graphic dualism, of course, being the representational versus abstract art. And of course, you might be saying, well, doesn't he just split the art into three categories rather than just two? And I kind of had the same response, but I think that the point is that these three categories don't rely on the abstract representation dualism. Like, Ambrose isn't annoyed at just the creation of categories to try to understand cave art. He's annoyed that the main categories are abstract and representational. Um, not because that's wrong, but, you know, because he sees this as an arbitrary assumption that mainly serves the purpose of highlighting the representational art and relegating the abstract art to the periphery or to the footnotes. Whether or not Anadi's threefold universal structure of cave art makes sense upon deeper inspection, what it does is put the abstract and representational prehistoric art on the same level, in a way, seeing them as things that interact with each other and work together on the cave walls. The three categories, I should mention, are not entirely mutually exclusive. There's complexity and mixing and relating and stuff that provides another reason for why Ambrose fancies Anadi's analysis. He doesn't categorize it in order to create a hierarchy of categories, I guess is one way you could say it. And another scholar who raised the abstract art to the same level as the representational art, some of which we saw last episode with him, um, is Michel Loblanchet, who argued that they interact and interrelate in deeply meaningful ways. So this is what Ambrose says about Loblanchet. Quote, For Loblanchet, these lines and marks indicate a clear metaphysical intention, a primeval magma, where all living and imaginary beings merge in formal games. Thus, these indeterminate lines and marks 
contained potentialities for the becoming of latent figural images, and as such are, for Laure Blanchet, a crucial element within the prehistoric figuration of a mythology of creation. Here, the figurative components are born from a formless tangle, or magma. For example, from the formless web of subsidiary lines, perhaps a hoof or an antler emerges, perhaps a muzzle or a creature's spine, perhaps an eye stares out from the depths of the graphic chaos. The seemingly incohesive graphic chaos is seemingly vibrant with emergent forms of life." Unquote. How cool is that? And in this article of Ambrose's, he adds some images that most that are most emblematic of this magma of life. Um, so I'll include some links to that in the description. Um, it'll really, it really helped me <laughs> make sense of this. Um, yeah, I just love that. Here, the figurative components are born from a formless tangle or magma, from the formless web of subsidiary lines. Perhaps a hoof or an antler emerges, perhaps a muzzle or a creature's spine. Perhaps an eye stares out from the depths of the graphic chaos. The seemingly incohesive graphic chaos is seemingly vibrant with, with emergent forms of life. Goddamn. Alongside Anatti and Lord Blanchet, Ambrose relies on two other scholars to form his arguments, and this is where the complexity comes in. These two scholars aren't known as Paleolithic cave art researchers, but instead as philosophers and um, you know, cultural theorists and stuff. Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari, who often collaborated together. They're two French philosophers, and when we start digging into them, or rather Ambrose's interpretation of them, just keep in mind that they are very complicated, and I don't know their theory at all well. This is what the whole preamble at the beginning was about. Um, all, of their, all of their philosophy is grounded in this really complicated metaphysics, so it's, it's a lot. Um, if you want to listen to somebody, some people who know them well, if your interest is piqued by this episode, um, I recommend two other podcasts, Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour and Acid Horizon. There's just some podcasts that talk a lot about these two philosophers. Um, and, and of course, if you know about them, please let me know uh, anything else that I missed or misinterpreted. So Ambrose's goal is, quote, to show that it was through the evolution of a unified plane of composition that prehistoric creators or artists were subsequently able to traverse freely and smoothly in all directions between the two extremes, that it was the existence of a radical form of stylistic free play within prehistoric wall art, which allowed for the boundaries between different living species to be so fundamentally and repeatedly transgressed. Over thousands of years, a number of styles evolved that permitted prehistoric artists, in graphic terms, to migrate or transgress from one organism or creature to another. The explicit presence of hybridized figures within a great deal of prehistoric art clearly indicates that the boundaries between animal species were far from inseparable and were often transgressed. Indeed, if we look at a panel from Troy Frere, we are seemingly presented with one of the most extraordinary attempts at picturing the dynamic magma of primordial animality." Unquote. So, 
I'll, I'll link uh, an image to that panel in the comments. This is why Ambrose doesn't like this dualism between abstract and representational art. He thinks the art is better explained if we see it all on the same plane, the same level, rather than this hard border between abstract and representational, as though the Paleolithic artists would look at a blank rock wall and be like, hmm, should I do abstract art today or representational art? Rather than that, there are only soft borders between all forms of cave art, soft borders that are continually transgressed, figures and shapes that are continually transforming. You know, th things are a lot more flowy. Transformation is a big part of it. Um, we've discussed various examples of it already, like when Watchtel described the bull superimposed over the deer in such a way that the flickering firelight would animate it as a bull transforming into a deer, the deer transforming into a bull, constantly in the state of flickering superposition whenever light was brought into the cave, or the thaumatrope that might show a human transforming into a strange creature that walks upright. To quote Liliana Janik again, quote, What is constant on both sides of the thaumatrope, however, is the hairy paw, most probably belonging to a bear, turning the object, one creature shifts in shape into the other, while the presence of the paw remains constant. What we see here is a kind of interpretive double jeopardy. The images engraved on the disc show the already transformed individual, which could be interpreted as the depiction of a shaman who has been transformed from a human being into an unknown creature, reflecting the last stage of the shamanic journey. Unquote. What's interesting is that transformation is a very big part of shamanism in general, not just shamanic art, not just shamans in caves. Like, worldviews of people and cultures called shamanic or animistic often live in worlds where transformation is integral to reality. And, and I say often just because I haven't read about every culture that could be described that way, but I've never encountered any that don't believe in a reality undergirded by transformation, like, a lot more than cultures, uh, you know, m like, modernity or whatever. Like, that's what a lot of shamanism is. The shaman can enter the worlds of spirits or animals or features on the landscape by transforming themselves. And spirits and animals and whatever often transform into humans for various reasons, sometimes nefarious. In fact, reading some anthropology makes it seem like at least some of these animistic and shamanistic cultures live in worlds that are, like, fundamentally transformative. The base of reality isn't this thing and that thing, and these things, but the ability to transform. And everything has that, you know, everything that appears to people as things is, sure, an appearance of that thing, but it could always transform into something else. Like, transformation is more fundamental than any form. And, you know, uh, like, something I've been thinking, if you take all humans that have ever existed, is it... Is it a weird thing to believe in matter? Anyways, I'm getting off track, but and I don't want to spread a misinterpretation. This transformative universe is filtered through the specificities of the given culture. There's a ton of variety in cultures that can be described as animistic and shamanistic. These terms are very large umbrellas. This means that certain types of transformation are much more common in a given culture, 
like connected to foundational myths and histories of that culture, like the Avila Runa in the Ecuadorian Amazon, who have many stories about jaguar people or people jaguars, or even what we can call like were jaguars, like werewolves. Um, and as a result, there's there's a lot of encounters with these were jaguars, like jaguars transforming into humans, inviting an actual human to dinner, where the human finds out too late that he's the dinner. <laughs> you know, stories like that. Um, were jaguars are a common form of transformation in their world, and there are many other possible transformations that they've never seen and never talk about, like an anthropologist turning into a tree or whatever. But the point is that any conceivable transformation is possible. Like that's that's what I mean by transformation undergirding reality. How transformation is prior to form in at least some of these societies. Anyways, that's that's a whole off topic thing. Um but it's really good to get out of this uh mindset. Like like how last episode we were talking about how what we mean by art is completely different to other societies. That same thing goes to uh, you know, a lot of other things like like objects and matter and stuff. I don't know. Next episode we're gonna talk about some arguments that shamanism was an integral part of lots of prehistoric rock art, including some of the most famous sites like Lasso. And somewhere down the line I'll be delving into this stuff a lot more in detail. But anyways, the point is that it's probable that transformation was a much more fundamental thing in the worldviews of the ancient cave artists than it is for me and you, living under the influence of modernity. And following from that, it's probably that transformation in their art was very meaningful and very important, much more so than it would be apparent to like the naive viewer from my culture. It might be why they wanted to make thaumatropes and other types of proto-animation in the first place. So this is my own view on why Ambrose's interpretation is worthwhile. If you put the abstract and the representational on the same plane and interpret the representational as sort of emerging from the abstract and fading back again, transformation is similarly fundamental, like in contemporary animistic and shamanistic cultures. So with all that said, let's return to Ambrose. We were talking about how he was going to use Deleuze and Guattari as well as those prehistorians, to elucidate a new way of seeing cave art. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, Deleuze and Guattari are far too complicated to be explained in their entirety in one podcast episode, so definitely keep that in mind. Luckily, Ambrose sums up how their philosophy was used by him to bolster the claim that from its beginning, quote, art has sought to invent means for rendering visible certain intensities of life, affects, energies, rhythms, and forces, Très bien. Mais les nomades, ils voyagent pas, quoi. Les nomades, au contraire, à la lettre, ils restent immobiles. C'est-à-dire, tous les spécialistes des nomades l'ont dit, c'est parce qu'ils veulent pas quitter. C'est parce qu'ils s'accrochent à la terre. C'est parce qu'ils s'accrochent à leur terre. Leur terre devient déserte et ils s'y accrochent. Ils peuvent que nomadiser dans leur terre. C'est à force de vouloir rester sur leur terre qu'ils nomadisent. Donc, en un sens, on peut dire rien n'est plus immobile qu'un nomade. Rien voyage moins qu'un nomade. C'est parce qu'ils veulent pas partir qu'ils sont nomades. Donc, two art theorists from the early 20th century 
Regal and Warringer theorize about Western art and its history using a concept called Kunstwollen, or the will to art, something according to the concept that's present in all artists, no matter the time or place. Maybe something that can be connected to last episode and that aesthetic mode of consciousness that's maybe universal. I don't know. A bit later, in the mid-20th century, the phenomenological philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty wrote about the single task, stretching from Lasso to modernity. For Merleau-Ponty, this single task, quote, secretly inaugurates another history, which is still ours, and which operates like fires answering one another in the night, unquote. I love that. Another history, which is still ours operating like fires answering one another in the night. Reminds me of one of my favorite poems by Gary Snyder, one of the beat poets, called How Poetry Comes to Me. It goes like this. It comes blundering over the boulders at night. It stays frightened outside the range of my campfire. I go to meet it at the edge of the light. Maybe we can alter it and think about it with the title How Art Comes to the Artist. All artists throughout history have met their art at the edge of the firelight, sometimes using firelight to animate it or to bring motion and time into the art. And all these fires are connected in the night, secretly inaugurating another history which is still ours. Beautiful. Another history which is still ours, where the hour is all of humanity? Maybe that's, maybe that would be a good project. Maybe that's what we need. But anyways, the takeaway is that Deleuze and Guattari also write with this kind of idea in mind of a will to art or a single task stretching through the ages. And they're also concerned with trying to give a genealogy of Western art, its line of descent, its lineage. That's a reconceptualization from what they see as the preceding outdated theories that put representation at the center and non-representational art on the periphery. Seeing representation as like the goal of art, something that goes back to like Plato and Mimesis and stuff. Instead of a will to art or a single task, Deleuze and Guattari talk about how artists across cultures and time had a quote, common problem. In art and in painting, as in music, it is not a matter of reproducing or inventing forms, but of capturing forces. The task of painting is defined as the attempt to render visible forces that are not themselves visible." I think hearing that for the first time, you might be like, what the the hell does that mean? (laughs) That might not be super uh, meaningful yet. Um, But that thing about art not reproducing or inventing forms, but capturing forces to render visible forces that are not visible, that's something that's going to stay with us the whole way, so keep that in mind. Deleuze and Guattari want to reinterpret art and its history by arguing that all artists are faced with the same question. How do you make the invisible visible? And yeah, of course, if you've never looked into their philosophy, this might sound weird. This is how they move away from representationalism. I think the goal is to capture forces Quote, to extract a block of sensations, a pure being of sensation, unquote. This block of sensation can be split into two. 
percepts and affects. Percepts referring to perception, and affects being a term used by the philosophers Spinoza and Bergson that highlight the body and bodily experience, kind of related to feelings and emotions but distinct from them. It's distinct because, for some complicated reasons, but it's distinct because it doesn't rely on the person. It's pre-personal, so maybe of the body, not the self, I think, might be one way to say it. Affect in Spinoza was when one body encounters another body and goes through a change that increases or lessens its power to act. And Spinoza goes deep into it, splitting up affect into three basic categories, relating it to God, you know, all the stuff we don't need to know. Then in Bergson, a philosopher in the late 1800s, it's a bit simpler. He makes a dichotomy that describes the two ways we know our body. We know it from the outside via perception, and then from the inside via affect. Brian Masumi, this well-known Deleuze and Guattari scholar, says that affect in Deleuze and Guattari is, quote, an ability to affect and be affected. It is a pre-personal intensity corresponding to the passage from one experiential state of the body to another, and implying an augmentation or diminution in that body's capacity to act. Affect is each state considered as an encounter between the affected body and a second affecting body, with body taken in its broadest possible sense to include mental or ideal bodies. Unquote. So, you might have kind of gotten uh, like whiplash from that or something. We kind of jumped straight into it. Um, you might be a, a little bit lost. So, remember, we were talking about how Deleuze and Guattari think that all art is trying to capture invisible forces, trying to make them visible. And another way to say this, the, to talk about these forces, they say they, they said that the artist wants, wants to extract a block of sensations, a pure being of sensation. So that's, that's a different way of talking about these invisible forces. So I hope you're still with me. Like, like let's imagine a painting, right? Instead of thinking about it as trying to mimic the form of a house or something like a rep representationalist theory would think about it as trying to capture some sort of forces from the world that can't be seen they're saying that what becomes that painting if if the artist did it well that painting of the house should be a block of sensations so something extracted from the world and then these sensations put into that art as a block. And then this block can be split into two, percepts and affects. And we were just going through what affect meant, one half of that block of sensation. Does that make sense? The goal of art is to capture forces, to extract a block of sensations, and this block of sensations can be split into two, percepts and affects. And affects is this kind of hard to understand thing. It's, it's pre-personal. It's kind of like feeling or emotion, but in a slightly different way. They're trying to get at something else. Um, I think the goal with affect might be to try to highlight the body and not the self. That's why it's pre-personal. Um, that's why they use this other term. Uh, I think that's close enough anyways. One additional thing to mention is that 
since the 90s, I think partially because of Deleuze and Guattari, there's been something called the affective turn happening in academia, where lots more people in various disciplines focus on this idea of affects. Um, and the reason for this is because these scholars have found affect to be a good way to describe forms of experience that lie outside of the paradigm of representation, which is the dominant one. I would guess that this means representation like an image, like an art, but also language, like, like representing something in words. I'm not sure, um, but I, this is a good way to get back to what we're talking about, back to affect. In their last book together, called What is Philosophy, Deleuze and Guattari look at not just philosophy, but also art and science, seeing these three things as things that are related in certain ways, but also distinct. So they, they say things like, quote, philosophy, art, and science are not the mental objects of an objectified brain, but three aspects under which the brain becomes subject, unquote. And other cool and confusing things like that. They say that art, as I said, is when artists extract a block of sensations in the form of affects and percepts. And then they say that science works with functions. What that is, is of course very complex. And they answer the title of the book, What is Philosophy?, by saying that philosophy creates concepts. Again, not the colloquial definition of concept, but something more nuanced and complicated. But I think it's still cool to think about without going into all that stuff. Like, philosophy is the creation of concepts as the average person understands concepts. Because I think, like, too many people think philosophy is trying to find the truth, and then they get mad when science comes comes across as better at that. I think it's better to think about it like this. Like, the goal is to create concepts, and different concepts reveal different ways of seeing the world, or parts of the world. But anyways, Ambrose and us are focused on art, and not science or philosophy. And art's the capturing of invisible forces involves extracting a block of affects and perceptions. I'm sure a lot of you have been wondering, what is this block of affects and perceptions being extracted from in the first place? Well, it's being extracted from the human, the artist, who was doing the perceiving and being affected. I think, or, or maybe it's better to say, it's being extracted from what makes the percepts and affects specifically human, so it becomes part of the universe for other bodies to interact with, rather than a specific human interaction with the world. I think that's something like it. The main point is that art works via affect, not representation or resemblance. Another way they describe this affect is as a non-human becoming, a becoming with the world. And becoming is a term that's very important in their philosophy, but again, very complex. I'll be talking about it in future episodes somewhere down the line. But just for now, I'll say that a big dualism in Western philosophy is being versus becoming. Being is what something is, while becoming is what something turns into. Right? That's an incredibly surface-level summary for now. We'll come back to this in a sec. But first, I want to read a long passage from Ambrose. Don't worry about understanding everything, just understand what you can. This is just to ease ourselves deeper into thinking about this. 
Ambrose says, quote, The affect is defined as a becoming other, not merely as a passage from one lived state to another, but man's non-human becoming. For Deleuze and Guattari, life alone creates such indeterminate zones where all beings whirl and rotate in a primeval magma. Art is capable of reaching, transversing, and penetrating this chaotic zone through its efforts at what they call co-creation. Art gains its own vitality and life from plunging into this virtual field in life, a field capable of dissolving all organic forms and imposing the existence of a zone where we no longer know or can determine what is animal or human. The artist is obliged to create radically plastic methods and techniques for handling material in order to recreate the vital and primitive magma of life, or what they call a single abstract animal. Artists are the presenters of affects, i.e. modes of becoming with the world. They are literally the inventors and creators of affects, of folds where one goes from one form on the organic stratum to another. Artists not only create them in their work, but they give them over to us in such a way that we become with them. They draw us into the compound of sensation. For Deleuze and Guattari, the artwork does not simply actualize what is essentially a virtual event. Rather, the artwork in some sense comes to embody the virtual event itself. The artwork gives this virtual event a body, life, or universe. These bodies, lives, or universes are neither virtual nor actual, but are, they argue, possibles. The possible becomes a privileged type of aesthetic category. Art is to be understood as the realm of the possible, virtual event. The formation or creation of the artwork takes place upon what Deleuze and Guattari call a plane of composition, which they subdivide into the technical plane of composition, which concerns the materials of the artwork, and the aesthetic plane of composition, which concerns sensations." Unquote. So when I first started reading all this stuff, I was like, okay, that's insanely cool and also insane. What the hell are they talking about? One reason it's so confusing is that Deleuze, at least, saw himself as primarily a metaphysician, and metaphysics is one of those things that is pretty confusing before French philosophers get involved, maybe partially just because it's something people don't think about too much, usually. Like, there's other parts of philosophy, like ethics, where everyone has a sense of what they're trying to get at, how to act good, even if they're using confusing, jargony language. But metaphysics is a bit weirder. I myself have been a little confused at how you think metaphysically. Like, in one part, Deleuze and Guattari follow Spinoza and say that reality is made up of infinitesimal things, kind of like particles, but not, because they're infinitesimal. And they go into describing how it works and how becoming functions with these infinitesimal things. And I'm like, based, based on what? <laughs> like, like, why are there these infinitesimal things? Like, like I don't understand th the logic. Like, I don't understand how you think in this way fully. But, um, <laughs> and of course, explaining that passage I just read would, you know, require 
me explaining their philosophy for an hour, <laughs> but we can talk about a few things in there. First of all, there's that idea that life, and only life, uh, with a capital L, can create these indeterminate zones where all being whirls and rotates in a primeval magma, and you know, art gains its own vitality and life from plunging into this field in life, a field capable of dissolving all organic forms and importing the existence of a zone where we no longer know or can determine what is animal or human. So this brings us back to what I was talking about earlier, about transformation. Um, but also, one thing to mention, something we'll get to later, but just keep in mind that Deleuze and Guatri, when they talk about life with a capital L, they're talking about something very different from a biologist. They kind of have a unique way of talking about life. It kind of seems like, to them, the, like the universe is alive itself. There's this kind of swirling life beneath everything. And what biologists or normal people think about as life, like me and you as distinct lives, like they kind of see that as, you know, like life in a way, obviously, but not the kind of life they're talking about. It's too, there's too much of a top jan structure. It's a body with organs, right? Their famous thing is talking about bodies without organs. And what they mean by that is like, is life that exists in between things or within us. Like, I don't know, it, it'll get fun. Um, but I just wanted to mention that up top. When they say life with a capital L, they mean something different. Um, and yeah, th this brings us back again, as I said, to transformation. Something interesting is that one of the things Deleuze and Guattari point to as evidence for this idea that they're trying to build is some anthropology of West Africa and the Americas, where there's a widespread belief in a form of creation myth, where sometime in the distant past, there was this primordial mythic time before the world, where animal and human and everything else mixed, transforming, where humans and animals could speak to each other. Um, and then something that's specific to the culture's history and myth happened to cause the world as we know it to appear, right? Out of this swirling primordiality, something happened, and then our world was created. It's a very common myth in lots of different cultures. And, you know, a big thing is that, yeah, it seems like forms were less stable in this primordial mythic time. It seems like our world you know, when our world was made, it was made with a bit more of stability of form, although there are still echoes of this transformational ability, you know, in like shamanism and stuff. And in their philosophy, Deleuze and Guattari are kind of trying to build a, you know, metaphysical as well as political and all this stuff, but, but a view of reality that is kind of similar to these societies with this primordial mythic time but instead of it existing in the past it exists sort of beneath everything like i think that's a big part of Deleuze and Guattari but beneath all the things in the world that we identify as things between you know beneath me the chair you 
our houses, the trees outside. Beneath everything, there's a single level of life, the capital L, where these exchanges and becomings and affects are all mixing and swirling together. And this is where, you know, this is where like novel things come from and stuff. Like, like I think that's what I'm getting from them. And art works by reaching into this level and getting something from it or using it in a certain way. And they go deeply into exactly how this works, of course. In that quote, Ambrose mentioned the like possibility as a separate aesthetic category and the virtual and how there are these two planes of composition, the technical and the aesthetic. Like all that is the sort of stuff I'm talking about. Um, I think we can get something useful from Ambrose without explaining all of that, though. But yeah, just keep in mind that all this stuff is undergirded by much more uh, a much more complex and thorough framework that, you know, don't just throw out Deleuze and Guattari if I explain them bad in this episode, in other words. Um, <laughs> so let's continue. And actually, I think we should delve into that last thing I mentioned, how Deleuze and Guattari believe in these two planes of composition, the technical and the aesthetic. So, yeah, another thing to mention is that they think a lot in planes. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that they call that single plane of life with a capital L. They also call it the plane of imminence, right? That concept of theirs. And the planes of composition are things that intersect with this plane of imminence to create forms. The plane of imminence has no form, only infinitesimal elements moving at different speeds or at rest. I'll just read their description of it. Quote, a pure plane of imminence, univocality, composition, upon which everything is given, upon which unformed elements and materials dance that are distinguished from one another only by their speed and that enter into this or that individuated assemblage depending on their connections, their relation of movement. A fixed plane of life, upon which everything stirs, slows down, or accelerates. A single abstract animal for all the assemblages that effectuate it. Unquote. But when it comes to art, they split it into two. The technical plane of composition and the aesthetic. And here's where it gets really cool, I think. They make some moves to make the aesthetic plane of composition with the plane of composition that exists in nature, that intersects with the plane of imminence, quote, whereby an actualization of the virtual self-forming forms as organic life occurs. This natural plane of composition is simply that of every living form in its ongoing process of concrete embodiment and individuation. Unquote. So in other words, what gives, you know, what gives me the form to make me a thing that other people call Sean? Same with you. That that thing they call the natural plane of composition. This thing that intersects with this swirling capital L life plane of eminence. That's that's one way they talk about, you know, what we call forms arising. Like you know, anything that's distinct from any other thing. They conceive of it as an intersection between the plane of imminence and this natural plane of composition. 
Um, but the cool thing is that, you know, they're, they're saying that the aesthetic plane of composition, when it comes to art, they're saying that that's the same thing as this natural plane of composition. Um, but we're going to build to that. So for now, there are still two planes of composition in art, the aesthetic and the technical. And the technical plane of composition is when that block of space-time, those affects and percepts, adapts itself to the material. Like, let's say, like the paint in a painting. Like, that's the technical plane of composition. Ambrose says, quote, In painting, this is the mode of representational, naturalistic, and perspectival art, in which sensations are projected upon a material plane or surface that is always already inhabited by spatial schemata and coordinates that structure the morphology of the figure. It is a kind of graphic hylomorphism, hylomorphism being the doctrine that the order displayed by material systems is due to the form projected in advance by an external producer, a form which organizes what would otherwise be chaotic or passive matter." Unquote. So I don't fully get this. This is something I'm still trying to figure out. But just to make it, you know, take it out of that complicated language, what Ambrose is saying is that one of these planes of composition that the artist uses, the technical plane, that's the plane that is involved with representational or naturalistic art, like linear perspective. So somehow, and I think by saying that the block of space-time adapts to the material, I think it means material not as formless paint, but organized in a particular way, based on certain conventions and stuff. Like, I think the technical plane might be when the art dips into this single plane, life with a capital L, and the affects and sensations it brings up, it captures to adapt to the material in a certain way. The material is organized in a certain way, like like by the laws of linear perspective. And in so doing, it organizes this otherwise chaotic swirl of affect and percept. I think the technical plane of composition is something like that, where there's like a, you know, some sort of organization that comes, some sort of blueprint, some sort of logic. Something that will obviously help is to look at the other plane of composition, of course, um, the aesthetic plane of composition. Ambrose says that this second plane allows us to think about the material used in the art in a cool way. Um, let's stick with painting for this example. So Deleuze and Guattari don't think that the paint is just sitting there, politely, neutrally, waiting to receive forms and intensities and affects and sensations, but they think that the paint is like all matter, itself always also composed of intensive and energetic traits. So not only is affect and percept and sensation and these intensities and energies acting on the matter, adapting themselves to the matter, you know, the artist using the paint, but the matter is acting on them too. So for this reason, forms are continually changing, transforming, becoming. Like, yeah, like everything is connected to this plane of imminence. 
There's nothing neutral. Quote, the forms of matter are never fixed molds. Rather, they are something determined by the singularities of the material itself. It is then a principle of energetic matter and continuous imminent development and variation. In painting, the materiality of the paint itself comes to articulate and express forces. The matter of paint itself becomes the crucial expressive component in the artwork. Matter movement carries with it singularities as implicit or virtual forms. It is then the potential for material self-ordering with which the artist negotiates. The form as such is something suggested by the material itself rather than being the pure product of the mind of the artist. Forms are created out of these suggested virtual potentials of the matter rather than being something which is preconceived by the artist and then imposed on a passive matter. The artist on the aesthetic plane of composition in some sense surrenders to matter, so the artist must follow matter's singularities by attending to its traits, and then devise strategies to bring out these virtualities, to actualize them as sensible, individuated possibilities. These two planes, the technical and the aesthetic, Deleuze and Guadri argue, finally express only a single plane, what they call the plane of aesthetic composition. And it is upon this plane that a radically non-hylomorphic mode of artistic production becomes possible, a production that consists of extracting and rendering sensible virtualities." Unquote. So instead of the painter imposing their will on the paint, both the painter and the paint are active, and acting on each other, with each other, to create the painting. Something I've thought about before, not really this, but kind of related, I just want to mention it, is um, like, you know the flow state people talk about? I think about it when it comes to like writing a story, let's say. If you've, ever, if you've ever written something before, you might have experienced this. Where at the start, it really does feel like you are thinking about what to write and then willing your hand to write the words. But at some point, if you're lucky, you can get into this flow state. And, you know, people talk about it in various ways, usually in ways that I, you know, click off the YouTube inspirational ad as fast as possible. Um, but I like to think about the flow state as you sort of being propelled along by the inertia of what you've already written. You're flowing, the words are just sort of happening, but I really like thinking about it as like a reversal of causality, where instead of your mind thinking about what to write and directing your hand in this hierarchical way, which, you know, of course, that's not how it actually works, but it's often a simplified way of, you know, how we, th or, you know, it's a way of thinking about how it works. But with the flow state, instead, it's a lot more obvious that the stuff on the page is sort of involved in the creation of the further stuff on the page. Like there's there's this flip in causality where the future of the story is kind of latent in what's already written. The words on the page have a sort of potential energy to them. If you remember back to high school physics, <laughs> potential energy. And when you're in the flow, the story's kind of working upon you instead of you working upon it. Or maybe not a complete reversal of causality, but maybe we can think about it more like what Deleuze and Guattari were just saying, where it's not a complete reversal of causality, but instead the story 
develops potential energy um and the, f- the future that's bursting out of the past on the page kind of rises to the level of your mind so you you work with it maybe that's a better way of conceptualizing it a mutual sort of thing dual forces combining to become the story on the page so i don't know if that exactly lines up with Deleuze and Guattari but it's something I like to think about and a way of thinking about art that allows the art to act on the artist or act with the artist in a way you know how the art and artist can become with each other can co-create. Ambrose finished that excerpt by saying quote the artist on the aesthetic plane of composition in some sense surrenders to matter so the artist must follow matter's singularities by attending to its traits and then devise strategies to bring out these virtualities, to actualize them as sensible individuated possibilities. These two planes, the technical and the aesthetic, Deleuze and Guattari argue, finally express only a single plane, what they call the plane of aesthetic composition, and it is upon this plane that a radically non-hylomorphic mode of artistic production becomes possible, a production that consists of extracting and rendering sensible virtualities." Unquote. So there's a lot in there. I haven't gone over this virtual stuff yet. Um, we'll get there. And I'm not 100% sure about the significance of talking about these planes. Um, it definitely ties into Deleuze and Guattari's whole thing, but yeah, I'm not sure the significance of the move of having these two planes and making them one thing, the plane of aesthetic composition. But that's okay for now. What I can explain is radically non-hylomorphic. Um, hylomorphism is a staple of a lot of Western philosophy, going back to Aristotle. And a lot of Deleuze and Guattari is really trying to reconceptualize and rethink a lot of very basic fundamental things in Western philosophy. Hylomorphism is the idea that every being, like for instance me or you, is a combination of matter and form. That's a, that's a cl- classic way philosophers would try to understand things, you know, splitting it up into matter and form. Although, I don't know how contemporary it is. Like, there were medieval philosophers who worked with this theory, this notion of hylomorphism. But it seems to sort of have fall into the wayside during the modern period, except for you know, a few people trying to bring it back, like, you know, some of the people involved with quantum physics, like Heisenberg. But again, reading between the lines, it seems like it remained important for Western art theory. Now we arrive at Deleuze and Guattari trying to overcome the idea, trying to reconceptualize art. So what they're trying to do, to move away from hylomorphism, instead of the main thing in art being matter and form, Deleuze and Guattari argue that it should be matter and forces, as we've gone over. Quote, A material is a molecularized matter, which must accordingly harness forces. These forces are necessarily forces of the cosmos. There is no longer a matter that finds its corresponding principle of intelligibility in form. It is a question of elaborating a material charged with harnessing forces of a different order. The visual material must capture non-visible forces." Unquote. The artist extracts effects and perceptions from their everyday, humanly-embodied experience 
and co-creates with expressive, active matter, an artwork composed of these effects and perceptions, in a new way, kind of extracted away from the human, I think. Um, the artist creates on what is conceived of as a plane, this aesthetic plane of composition, and when the percepts and affects are extracted, they're somehow engaged with this plane, brought to this plane, intersected with this plane, um, which, quote, is configured as an infinite field of forces and intensities, an infinite play and transmutation of forces. The artwork engages with these forces as they operate within a process of becoming. The aesthetic plane of composition can be thought of as a type of embodied becoming. In this way, we can begin to think of prehistoric art as being engaged in a ceaseless search to create a finite monument that in some way restores a sense of the infinite. Unquote. I feel like I don't quite fully understand this yet, but just a rough idea is still interesting in my opinion. The artist and the material both work with each other, and this infinite field of forces and intensities, this infinite play and transmutation of forces. The part I don't get is how the extracted block of space-time is connected to this infinite field. But that last part is cool. In this way, we could begin to think of prehistoric art as being engaged in a ceaseless search to create a finite monument that in some way restores a sense of the infinite. A key thing is that the artist goes into this infinite chaos, this life with a capital L, but from that they don't just recreate what their organs sensed, but part of that extraction we talked about earlier is that it, quote, establishes the being of the sensory, a being of sensation, that is the percept, upon a radically inorganic aesthetic plane of composition, unquote. Um, so that was Ambrose. So again, that's, that's taking, taking these percepts and affects away from the human. S somehow the aesthetic plane of composition is involved in that. Taking away from the human and co-creating with matter to, you know, to show these invisible forces in that matter. Something like that. I'll read the fuller passage of Ambrose's, where he ties this into how we should view prehistoric art. He says, quote, the prehistoric artist can be understood as attempting to commune with infinite chaos and bringing back varieties that no longer constitute the mere reproduction of the sensory in the organs, i.e. perceptions, but rather establish the being of the sensory, a being of sensation, i.e. the percept, upon a radically inorganic aesthetic plane of composition. It is this aesthetic plane that is capable of restoring to this extract the infinite. According to Deleuze, all art fundamentally struggles with primal chaos in order to bring forth a vision that illuminates that chaos for an instant, that instantiates it as a sensation. Prehistoric art should, I suggest, be reconceived as a cohesive composition of chaos that attempts to yield the vision or sensation of chaos. It constitutes a type of sophisticated composed chaos that is neither foreseen nor preconceived." Unquote. So, I hope you're getting a similar sense of what they're getting at. Probably not completely there yet, but you know, maybe a feeling for what they're after. Um, something interesting to note there is that 
he makes a distinction between perceptions and percept. So perceptions are tied to like the human organs that perceive, I think. But the percepts, that's something that can be extracted from the human in art. Um, that's just one thing to mention. Another thing, something that I thought of when reading this was doodling. Like back in high school when I was bored. Like I think because representation and a singular, easily summarizable meaning to one's art are such big things in, you know, Western culture when the typical person talks about art. People usually only try to make art, like if they're not an artist, when they have like a preconceived notion of what they want to make or do already. Like, does that make sense? Like, like how we think about art influences how we do it, which reinforces how we think about it. Like, I, I don't make much art myself, um, like painting, like visual art like that. Um, sometimes I write things, though, but I only start to write something if I have an idea for it already. So if I've never read this paper by Ambrose, I'd be more inclined to think about my art as my will altering the material and creating an artwork. But if, you, if you're like bored in class and doodling or something, it's a completely different thing. It's more mindless and less focused. So I think, at least for me, how I doodle, that doodling aimlessly is a bit closer to what Ambrose and Deleuze and Guattari are trying to get at, maybe? When you're moving your pen around and where it moves is kind of co-created by what's already written, by the shape of the page, by where its edges, and sometimes maybe forms emerge, like how Ambrose talks about cave art, how, you know, an eye or a hoof would emerge from this graphic chaos. So I think that's one, one thing to think about, one way of maybe getting to their, uh, getting into the same arena they're in without such confusing language. Ambrose goes a lot deeper into Deleuze's philosophy, how the theoretical moves we went over allow him to align the aesthetic plane of composition with the natural plane of composition. You know, that thing that allows forms to emerge in the world by intersecting with the plane of imminence. Um, you know, he, he talks about how Deleuze thinks that thought begins in the senses and life should be thought of as the actualization of the virtual in this complicated way. All this cool stuff that I don't think would be worth getting into. Um, and I think I should split up the episodes here. Um, I'll be back in a part two to continue with this. Et que, que les autres rêves, c'est très dangereux. Et que le rêve est une terrible volonté de puissance. Et que chacun de nous est plus ou moins victime du rêve des autres. Même quand c'est la plus gracieuse jeune fille. Même quand c'est la plus gracieuse jeune fille, c'est une terrible dévorante. Pas par son âme, mais par ses rêves. Méfiez-vous du rêve de l'autre, parce que si vous êtes pris dans le rêve de l'autre, vous êtes foutu. 